It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 8th of July. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Now, if you're going on the protest tomorrow, probably no harm to remember to bring the sun cream because it looks like the weather is going to be very good and that's what the organisers of any rally or protest will be hoping for so that the numbers will attend. Uh, it looks like there could be a lot of people in Navan tomorrow. Let's uh, speak uh, to Patter Tobin who's uh, the AIM2 leader at TD for Meath West and the chair of uh, the Save Navan Hospital campaign as well as Minister of State Damien English of Finnegale TD for Meath West and good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, let's talk uh, about what's planned tomorrow first of all, Patrick Tobin. Give us a, a, an overview. You're asking people to meet at one o'clock in the town. Yeah, so so far we've collected 15,000 petitions. Uh, hundreds of posters have been erected uh, across the county. Tens of thousands of leaflets have been delivered. Uh, community groups, uh, organisations will be there in their colours and sporting groups will be there in their jerseys. Uh, Navin Silver Band will be playing and there'll be a festive uh, feeling um, at the march tomorrow and we're just asking people uh, that this is D-Day for Navin A&E and we're asking people to come out in large numbers to support the most important, the most critical health service that we have uh, in this county. 25,000 people use the uh, ED, the uh, the A&E, every single year uh, in Meath. And thousands of people are alive in our county as a result of that service. So it's really critical that people come out in numbers uh, and enjoy the good weather, enjoy the music, uh, but send a really strong message to the government that we will not tolerate the deletion of this critical service tomorrow. So we're asking people to gather at 1 p.m. on the Trim Road uh, at the Enterprise Centre, and shortly after 1 p.m. we will then march through the town uh, right up to the uh, Park Talton, and outside Park Talton we'll then uh, have a number of speakers uh, in relation to the critical services that are there. Um, and this is this is a battle of um, you know our lifetime in many ways in Meath. This I've never seen <clears throat> a battle so difficult and so much pressure put on the county as in recent times. Uh, but I I honestly believe that if we send a message to the minister. 
to the HSE that we are just not going to tolerate this in County Meath, that we will have a chance to save this critical service and people's lives will be saved into the future. How many people are, are you expecting uh, or what would you consider to be a good turnout? Well, it's very hard to say, but it, there's no doubt that there will be thousands of people there tomorrow. Absolutely, there's no doubt about it. And typically, we have been able to bring 10,000 people onto the streets uh, in different marches in the past. Um, so I, I'll be delighted if, 10, uh, if, <clears throat> if we get 10,000 people onto the streets tomorrow. I'd be absolutely delighted because, um, you know, for, for ministers, we have uh, Minister English, we have Minister Byrne, we have Minister McEntee in this county. For those types of numbers to walk the streets uh, tomorrow to show their, their demands, their need for this service, that can't be ignored uh, by the political class, by the political establishment. Um, it has to be listened to. Um, these are the people who, ha- who vote in elections. And these are the people who will tell the, the political establishment in this county uh, in no uncertain terms if they let us down uh, where to go. And that's really, really important for people to, to know that, uh, for the elected representatives to look at the likes of Roscommon uh, and see what happens when key services are closed down. And what we're facing in Meath uh, into the future is basically a Limerick University Mark II. Uh, we're facing a situation where uh, there will be phenomenal hospital overcrowding in Drogheda uh, if we close our A&E in, in Navan. The figures that have been produced by um, consultants in Drogheda uh, are very clear. Between 35 and 45 patients every single day will stop attending Navan ED and head to Drogheda, which means that they will have an increase of 25% in the numbers attending their services on a daily basis. They're already waiting times of 12 hours in Drogheda uh, for services. We already know that Connolly staff have been out on the okay. picket. We'll come back protect. to these issues in a yeah. moment if I can come to Damien sure. Rubbish. Just bear with me for a minute. Uh, uh, because uh, you mentioned uh, the ministers in the county. Thomas Byrne won't be walking the streets with you or the uh, people out protesting uh, tomorrow. The minister was with us on the programme yesterday and he, he told us so. So let's go to Damien English. Minister, will you be walking uh, the streets? Uh, with uh, people protesting tomorrow. Tomorrow, Michael, and thanks for having me on and for, for chatting with this. Uh, Michael, first of all, um, I totally share the love uh, for Navin Hospital. Like everybody will be on that march tomorrow. And there will be a big crowd there tomorrow. It'll be a good day. I share the concerns for Navin Hospital. Uh, but, uh, but, but for me, I won't be at that march because it's not the way I do my business as a government minister. Um, I have to work with the, the, with the medical people who have expressed issues and concerns that need to be addressed, along with the politicians and the ministers. And I'll continue to do that the way I do it, because that's the way I do my business as a minister. So I won't be at the march. I hope there's a big crowd at it, and good luck to Father and all the organisers. I hope it's a good day. But for me, though, it's important that people who are at that march, because Father says about sending a message to government, well, I'm in that government, uh, and I listen to the people every day of the week, and I engage and I work and I run this programme every day of the week as well. So I do share the concerns, and my work, along with all the politicians across all the parties, is to try to do our best to make sure that we get that best health service for people we represent and people who are marching tomorrow and people who won't be able to make the march for other reasons. They want the best health service and they want us as politicians to work that out with the doctors, with the medical people who have raised concerns with us. And so the two things I want to focus in on, what exactly is going on and where is the situation at the moment. So as it stands, there is a proposal on the table, a medical proposal, mm. 
Can we come back to that in a moment, Minister? Um, yeah, no, but can we can, can we come back to the, both the points? Uh, uh, and I do want to cover um, the merits for and against. Uh, uh, but uh, just to stay with uh, the march tomorrow, before we get into uh, whether uh, it's safer to keep it open or to close it or whatever, um, do uh, protests like this make any difference? Can people sway government opinion can they affect change do the do the numbers of people who turn out on the streets uh, make any difference is there a difference between 5000 and 15000 people coming out and how the government will view the situation as a result so Michael, from my point of view what what, what what this is about is medicine not politics right a hospital that we all love we know it has saved thousands of lives and we continue to that way into the future the minister here, who has overall responsibility, has said to the HSE, they can't make these changes. So he's made a political decision already. He has said no, because he's not convinced that, that this is the best solution. And I'm not convinced. So but let's just say for now, very, very clearly, the minister, the politician has said to the HSE, no. There is a medical issue at play here. There's medical concerns that have, be, uh, have been raised. We have to address them and deal with them. Naturally, as a Navantee... But people can't influence the outcome. So, 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 Michael, of course, we can all influence, but this is about getting around the table with all the experts who care for But us. the people who march tomorrow won't be around that table. Uh, can they have their say or influence thinking by marching and protesting? Of, of, of course they can have their say by talking to us in many different ways and having these discussions, Michael, which we've had here now for months, over the airways, which is great. But for me, I have to also work through you know, with ministers, with doctors, with physicians, consultants, the HSE, how to get this done. I've been doing that for the last 10 years as a minister, and I will continue to do that, working very closely with them. But I want to be, I have to be honest with people too, the hospital is a massive health asset for our county. It is there, it will always be there. There's an extra 25% people working, there's extra money, so it's always going to be there. There is a medical discussion around... And let's have that discussion now, because let me go. Let me go back to Patrick Tobin and uh, uh, leave it to both of you then to bounce off each other if you feel so inclined. Because it, it seems to me at this stage, Patrick Tobin, uh, it doesn't matter how many people are, are going to protest tomorrow. You said you'd be delighted if ten thousand come out. If twenty thousand come out, I don't think it'll influence the decision at all. I think the decision has been made. It's a question of when, rather than if, the emergency department in Navan will close. People power is one of the most powerful tools that any community has um, and it's one of the things that governments <clears throat> and TDs fear the most is when people actually flex their muscle and show their influence uh, and indeed the fact that we are the last any open from the whole HICWA list that was created 10 years ago shows that people power has actually been successful for me. Uh, I believe that TDs should be with their people. They should be marching with their people. They should be supporting their people and especially ministers in, in the county. And it, it is it's shocking and disappointing um, that we have two ministers in the county now, Damien and Thomas Byrne, who have said that they won't be with their people tomorrow. Um, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to see that. Um, the idea that, you know, that Damien says that you know, he is not convinced that closing it is the best idea, that he wants to sit around and talk about things, that he wants to ask questions of people, he wants to hear the facts. You know, that 10 years into a process that a minister who should be on the same team as the rest of the county would be saying that is, is wrong. Because okay. Let the minister know, come back there now. Uh, 
Michael, I have to be honest with people here. Uh, the only fear I have in my life is that I would make the wrong political decision that affects somebody's health. I, this is not about politics. This is about making the right decision for the best health service in, 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 that we want in Mead and in Navan. And, and I've always held that. I will continue that. So for me, it, this is about, it's not about numbers and votes and political. It's about listening to doctors. And if they have medical concerns, let's address them. Personally, I believe strongly that we can address them by, by, by in Avon, and that's what I want to be able to do. Well, they're worried people will die in Avon. So, exactly, Michael, and I share the concerns, but I also share the love of Navin hustle and everything goes in that march. But we, we, we have to fix this by sitting down together, walking out, and Minister Donnelly, he has said to the HSE that he also has the concerns of people walking on the streets. He wants to know, are we getting the best result here? So I have no doubt, with the medical concerns that Jerry Mackley's brought forward, I have no doubt that he's genuine in that. We differ on the solutions. Uh, and, and the ways of doing that. And that's what, we, that's what this review is about. That's why Minister Donnelly has said, no, no change for now. Let's assess the capacity in Navin. What would it take to, to, to deal with the medical concerns in Navin? And let's be clear here. Mm. The issue that Jerry McEntee and the lead clinicians are, are, and, and other GPs are concerned mm. about is the quality of a health service for about 10% See, of people who use... I'll just finish the final point. For about 10%. So they're telling, mm. they're telling us that in their view, due to modern medicine they can get a better health outcome, okay. outcome in a different hospital. Okay. We're saying to them, well, let's see, can we improve now? Yeah, you're saying build up the service, that and that's what Pater Tobin is saying. Uh, why why, why right. is there a protest if everybody's on the same page? Pater well, Tobin. Exactly. Yeah, but l- l- listen, it's just, you know, it's incredible that you could listen to Damien's uh, statements today, two years ago, four years ago, six years ago, eight years ago, and there's, there's nothing of, there's no new elements to Damien's statement. But what Damien is saying is, let's see, let's, let, let's have a look at, let's, we wait to be convinced. But the, the truth of the matter is, we know what's necessary to make Navin safe, and that is acute surgery services, uh, uh, positioned in Navin, which will mean that if things go wrong in the A&E, that there will be the necessary services to protect people's lives. We know that. It's very clear. The, uh, the, the ED consultants in Drogheda are saying this, but it's our job not to stand and watch and observe. It's our job as the elected representatives to achieve that goal of the can acute surgery and to yes. Let the minister come back. Mm. So, 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 Michael, there's two points of note here. Um, I, not that I've been making statements, but as a minister for 10 years, I've worked hard to make sure that Nav and Hospital services were kept there. So we've, that's been that's happened for the last 10 years. Nothing has changed. Exactly, what, nothing what has changed. changed. <laughs> <laughs> like, people want to see the change. People want to see that acute surgery services. Because, Damien, if nothing has changed, that means we keep coming back to this so, so my, situation where it threatens to be closed every two or three years. It's, it, it, the change of surgery services is necessary okay. to make sure that we don't find ourselves and I did put that point anymore. to you last week I think Minister, damned if you do, damned if you don't you don't want so, to go to Navin and you don't yeah, want to go to Drogheda, if that's the solution but 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 uh, are you are you in agreement with Pater Tobin as to what the solution is, is there any uh, ground between you? So, so Michael, to be clear here, neither me nor Pater are doctors right? Hmm. But we have both sat with the same GPs for a long number of years working for the best health service for Navin some of those GPs are now telling us that we actually really have to look at what's been proposed <coughs> and tease this out. Their, their advice to us as local GPs, who are doctors, has changed. Now, I have to be responsible and listen to that and tease it through. When I say nothing has changed, what I'm saying is, under my watch as a minister, I've worked hard to keep all these services 
at Navin Hospital. Mm. Rather than saying 10 years ago that Navin was closing and they were going, that hasn't happened under my watch. And I really need to do my job to deliver on that. Yeah, but you're a very clever person, Minister, and I'm sure you remember the Lennis report from 2008, which selected Navin as the location for the regional hospital, and the reason for that was population. The population of Navin, obviously, but not just that, the catchment population, the amount of people that a hospital in that town would be able to serve. And if there isn't a hospital or an emergency department in that town, Surely that's a, a dangerous situation. Without being a doctor, without being a medic, it's a logistical question, is it not? Yeah. And of course, uh, uh, Michael, but the, the doctors are telling us um, that there's concerns. And, and I want to offer them to fix those concerns. I believe, strongly, same as Hazard, in Ireland, we see that. You mentioned the report for the region, Hazard. Absolutely, I fully support that and have campaigned for it. And someday we will see that regional hospital. The issue at play here is, as Dr. Dr. McGuire has said to you and many others that mm. we've listened to, in, in the intervening years, because it could take a number of years to have a brand new hospital, what's the best way to guarantee top-class health outcomes for our patients in Nav and Amid? Mm. And some say that you have to uh, you have to remove 10% of that. I would say the same as Pather. No, can we not invest in Navin Hospital? But I would do that around the table, working with those doctors. Is, is it that easy job. to invest in Navin Hospital, Pather Hobin? Uh, I mean, it's one thing saying you'd recruit uh, however many consultants you're talking about. Uh, actually recruiting them is another thing. Say that uh, over 10 years ago, Damien promised a brand new regional hospital would be built in Navin, um, and I have the leaflet uh, that he published um, to to prove that. And I'm happy to to stick it up on Facebook if people want to have a look at that. Um, so uh, we have heard a lot from the from Fine Gael in relation to what we were going to get into the future, but that it hasn't materialised. Now, one thing has changed over that period of time, and that is overcrowding has got worse. Okay, so but just that, let's not lose sight of the question. It, it, will it be possible to recruit the people that you're talking uh, about, uh, the people that uh, uh, would be necessary to uh, make sure that uh, the hospital could continue with an emergency department? Yes, yeah, there are some arguments to say that it's difficult to, to recruit to Navin, but uh, we have made the argument back to the HSE, and they've accepted to this argument that if you recruit consultants um, 50% in a major hospital like the Matter and 50% in a hospital like Navin, it means that those consultants are usually happy to take up those roles. What happens is they can put on their CV, on the records that they've worked in a, a major hospital with okay. the throughput of the likes of the Matter. And how long would that take? And we would be hopeful that that could be done within a year. Within uh, a year, because you're talking about a complete reconfiguration, which is a very complicated thing to do. And within that year, you're putting 10% of the people who currently go to Navin at risk. Uh, If you are successful in stopping the closure of the emergency department, are you happy uh, to do that in the knowledge that you may end up having blood on your hands? Consultants in Drogheda made a very, very simple point and very, very clear. They said that the HSE plan simply seeks to move the risk that exists in Navin to Drogheda. It doesn't seek to fix that risk. That risk will still exist because it will exist in an overcrowded setting. We know that 350 people die because of overcrowding in the state on an annual basis. That's the figure. Well, they've made, their, they, they've made their case. Now I'm asking you to make your case. And I uh, are, you happy, are you happy Are you happy to have blood on your hands if that is the result of keeping the emergency department open? Well, it, it is 
my case that if we shift the risk to Drada, we're not fixing the risk and actually people will die in Drada if, uh, uh, in the future and there'll be blood on someone's hands if that happens. But if you... If you are part of the reason for preventing the closure of an unsafe emergency department knowingly because you're being told it's unsafe, you're being told that patients' lives are at risk. Are you happy to go ahead and, and do that or try to do that in the knowledge that you could very well have blood on your hands? I know that by moving those uh, patients to Drada, it will still leave those patients at risk and it will still leave that threat. Well, the only way, like, no, because you're not, answer, you're not answering the question that it was asked. No, the question was asked of you three times and you're not answering it. So uh, I'm, no, go, no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to the minister Minister, 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 to help exists. Minister, the only solution to Patter, this, please let me, Patter, Patter, we, we, yeah, we, but, but we heard that. Sure that, we heard that, Patter, no we heard that, and you, you, you don't want to talk about the risk that will result from not closing the emergency department. Is that, is that what people should be weighing up, Minister? For, for me, Michael, we have to find the best way to eliminate the risk. We all, of course, as me, TVs, we have a low for Navin Hospital, but we have a duty to sit down with GPs, consultants, doctors who have various opinions here to work out how do we eliminate the risk for our patients. But in weighing it up in your mind, are, are you listening to doctors saying there's a risk to human life here? Uh, and are you taking that on board? Absolutely. And that's why, for me, it's not politics. It's medical. I have to make the right political decision with them. So, so to be clear, Michael, what's at play here? We have doctors who tell us that for about 10%, about 2,000 people, they, they, have a, they have a better health outcome with a different service. Now, that's a risk they're saying they don't want to take. Then we have doctors who tell us that if you move that, those people into another hospital without the services, they're at the same risk. So we have to figure out, well, how do you eliminate the risk? Do you find the extra people, doctors, clinicians you need and put them into Navin Hospital to deal with that risk and to give a top-class service and to build them. Okay, well, there the are do something else. And, and they are the arguments the for and against. Many people uh, will feel differently to you, Minister, uh, or um, will protest tomorrow, at least, uh, uh, which uh, you said you won't. Uh, but uh, that's uh, at one o'clock tomorrow, Patrick Sobeen. Yes, yeah, so listen, okay. the reason the risk exists is because the service has been left in limbo. Okay, but I'm over time, so... But it is, uh, this is the most important uh, march that we've ever seen in the county. It is D-Day for the A&E, and we need extra investments okay. to make the service safe. But by closing it, it will absolutely threaten the health of the people of this county. And I would urge people to come out in large numbers in support of the most important uh, facility that we have in this county. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. We'll have more on this later in today's programme. That's uh, Patter Tobin, who's uh, founder and leader of AIN2, the TD for Mead West, and the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Also speaking to us uh, this morning, Damien English, uh, Fine Gael TD for Mead West and uh, Minister of State. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, thanks to Margaret Navin, who's been on the phone to us, uh, saying uh, that uh, government tell us that the emergency department in Navin is dangerous. Why don't they make it safe? Uh, and why have they been trying to control the message, as we heard this week, uh, that obviously referring to the gagging order that we heard about. So that's uh, the gagging order that came from the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, when he told to Gerry McEntee and other local hospitals 
hospital staff not to engage with the community. An incredible turn of events. Peter in Carlingford uh, in touch with us asking if uh, we would be speaking with Fianna Fáil Senator Aaron McGreehan today. Uh, I don't think we will. Uh, I'm pretty sure we won't. We're hoping that we might be speaking to Senator McGreehan on Monday, Peter. Uh, we did uh, contact uh, the Senator after that report in the Irish Examiner, which raised a few eyebrows uh, this morning, but the Senator says she's not available to us. I doubt that there's a, a gagging order in place there, but uh, I'm sure a lot of people could understand uh, why she doesn't want to talk about the lewd language that she is reported to have used at that meeting. Anyway, we're going to talk about housing now with uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Pat Casey, who's a member of Fianna Fáil's policy group on housing and former vice chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Housing because Fianna Fáil has launched a new initiative called the First Home Scheme. Uh, good morning to you, Senator, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, before we talk about housing, can I uh, talk to you about that meeting uh, which was attended by backbenchers and senators? I'm sure you were at it. Uh, can you confirm to us uh, that Senator McGreehan used that language uh, saying to stop concentrating on Sinn Féin and F Sinn Féin and F Fine Gael and F them all, we are FF? Apologies, Michael. I can't confirm or deny that the situation while I was at the initial stages of the meeting, I had to go to another meeting there. So it wasn't there for Aaron's contribution. So I can neither deny or confirm that that's what was said. So it wasn't there for that part, Michael. So okay. I do neither for you on that one. So apologies. All right. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure you're not surprised she's not talking this morning. Would you suspect she's been told not to talk to the media? Well, Erin Erin is a strong woman and she's voiced her opinions on several occasions, but I've never heard her using that language at parliamentary party meetings and at policy meetings. So, listen, I I don't know whether she did or not because I wasn't at that section of the meeting, but Erin is quite passionate about what she represents and how she represents Mm. now. And, but I, I cannot either deny or, or accept that that happened because I wasn't there, Michael. Is it usual for Fianna Fáil to issue gagging orders? No, no, I don't think it's a work, even if they do issue gagging orders, so I don't think it's a policy they follow, so. Okay. All right, it is a bizarre situation. Perhaps uh, the Senator will talk to us uh, on Monday, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning to talk about uh, this uh, first home scheme which many people believe will enrich in developers. What is it with Fianna Fáil and developers? Uh, You're always trying to put money in their pockets, aren't you? No, and and I think this is a, a this is a, a, a slogan that's been put out there, and we need to look beyond the slogans. What this scheme is doing, and what who this scheme is for, is families out there that you and I have both spoke about over the last years, who are caught in a rental trap, where their rent on a monthly basis is more than the mortgage they could receive off the bank, but they cannot reach that final piece of the jigsaw to get to home ownership. And this is what this scheme is doing. It's providing that gap. So young families out there who are caught in this rental trap can now aspire Mm. once again to own their own home. And it is a very targeted scheme. It has control mechanisms in it, which addresses this concern about there that this is for developers. This is not for developers. Mm. This is for families out there who cannot 
own their own home. A sense of deja vu here. Um, I'm listening closely to you, Sandra, and it sounds... Uh, pretty similar to what I heard about uh, the help to buy scheme back in 2016. That turned out to be a harebrained scheme uh, in terms of first-time buyers and a very good one for developers. Well, I, I think the evidence isn't quite there for that, Michael. If you, if you look at it, the first-time buyers grant is still there today and it's still serving a purpose. And when you combine both the first-time buyers scheme and the shared equity scheme, it gives you a combined total of up to 30% of state direct state involvement in allowing families to own their own home. Mm. And this is not a second mortgage, as people have put out this. This is yeah. a shared equity scheme. Okay, but you look at that helped buy scheme, uh, and we were told this would really just help first-time buyers, a third of them didn't need the deposits that the government were helping them with, according to the Parliamentary Budget Office. Yeah, yeah, well, but we have to look at that and we have to look at this scheme and what this scheme is doing. And this scheme is providing the gap. Hmm. for for And there's caps on this. So if you take loud, at the moment this scheme is clearly identified. The maximum price for the shared equity scheme in loud is 300000 hmm. Why, why so does it need to be so high? Well, that would be the average price of an average family home. Not at all. Sure. The, the average price no, of an average no, family home across the country is 290000 and that includes Dublin. Cost, you, get, you don't have to spend €300,000 in Louth to buy a house. I'm sorry. Across are you, the country, it's 225000 In Louth, it is different, the same as it is in my constituency. Hmm. In Wicklow, it's over 450000 so every county is different, and that's why there is a different cap in each county, Michael. And in Loud, the cap is 300000 So a young family out there who have a joint income of 60000 and and have their, the, the deposit of 30000 can now aspire to own their own home because the state will step in with the final 20% and bridge that 60000 gap. Mm. And it's an equity. It's not a mortgage as other people have proposed. It is an equity share in that home. Yeah. They own that home, and over a period of time, they can buy out that 20%. And the interest rates on it are simple in service charge rates on it on an annual basis. And in the first five years, there is no fees. And in years 6 to 15, the following 10 years, it's only 1.25% simple interest. Mm. So it does what it says. It gives people hope. It gives people that aspiration that they can once again own their own home. And I'm not buying into this thing that it is going into developers' pockets. Mm. We know across the country that there is schemes waiting to be built. And a lot of the reason they can't be built is because people can't get the mortgages to buy them. And we need to build homes that people can purchase. And this allows this, because we're continuously hearing bill to rent. This scheme will help to address that. For developers across the country, in towns like Drogheda and in my own towns like Wicklow and Arklow, once again can say, we can now build homes because the families living in Drogheda, Wicklow and Arklow can now once again... Okay, so so if somebody is buying a house in Louth for 300000 it'd be a nice house, by the way, for a first-time buyer in Louth, um, the government will give them 60000 
Uh, or <laughs> if they're buying a house in Dublin for four hundred and fifty thousand, the government will give them one hundred and fifty thousand. What happens yeah. if What happens if they don't pay it back? Well, well uh, the state still own the equity in the house. Hmm. So once it goes over 30 years, they continue to pay a 2.85% service charge okay. on an annual basis. Mm. So that can go on for 100 years, but the occupants of the house continue to pay 2.85% on that equity piece. Mm. And it's a simple interest. It's just 2.8% on an annual basis. And they continue to pay that. Okay. So at any point in time, you can either pay that off, or if you wish to sell the house, you must repay the market value of that equity piece at that point in time, not the, not what you bought it originally for. Right. Uh, and would they not be better um, bringing down their aspirations uh, and not aiming so high for so uh, such expensive houses and looking for something cheaper rather than going for a 300,000 house in Louth or a 450,000 euro house in, in Dublin? Uh, listen, it, I suppose... You've raised a very valid point, and I can give you an example in my own, within the own constituency, as you probably could do with Loud, whereas in North Wicklow, prices are, are fairly out completely, almost out of the reach. The people where you go back to the south of the county and you move down to small rural villages like Shalala, Carnew and Tinnahili, the prices are there are different. But the government can can have at some point in time have to say this is a local authority area and this is what the, we believe is the best targeted price in, in, in this area. We can't, I suppose, go to the granular thing of, of doing it on, on a village-by-village village basis. But I, I can understand the point you're making, but we have to look at it in some way and to have used the local authority boundaries as, as, the, as the designation. Yeah, well, this goes back to putting money in developers' pockets, I, I think. How, how, and, can and, I ask you? Yeah, okay. You I'd, I'd be delighted. Well, I'd be delighted to try and uh, explain why I, I'm asking that of a Fianna Fáil representative, the party that had the Galway tent for the developers, the party that stopped building social housing in the 80s, the party that then, as a result, created a property boom uh, in the 90s, which resulted in a crash and a destruction of the country and was written off politically probably forevermore until people forgot about it and then got in back into power and came up with this harebrained help to buy scheme which put money into developers pockets because people were getting deposits off the government that they didn't need and only uh, coming up with higher deposits which made housing more expensive in the same way now they don't have to pay up to 30% of the cost of the house and if buyers have more money uh, more disposable money than those who are, are selling to them end up charging more. Uh, it, it is pretty straightforward. And if you can buy a house in Talla for 209000 this morning, a two-bedroom house for 209000 you think you can get €150,000 off the government? Well, then maybe you'll go for the €450,000 and maybe the house in Talla will end up being 300000 Well, listen, I, listen I, I've listened to what you have said. And I'm trying to present this scheme as the scheme has been presented to the public yesterday. And we must understand that this scheme has gone through the scrutiny and has indeed got approval of the central bank as, as well. So it's wrong. I think the central bank are concerned time, about it. The central bank, because the, 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 the central bank has rules in place. I didn't intervene in okay, your yeah. contribution there. Okay. So this has been 
looked at for the last two years, has gone through all the scrutiny and the things that you have said has been spoken about. And the central bank have now mortgage rules in place where people cannot buy more than three or get a mortgage more than three and a half times their salary. The central bank has looked at this scheme and they said this scheme is, is doable, is good and, and will not will not feed into developers' pocket, but will allow people to own their own homes. And I think it's very important that we provide a pathway to own ownership for people. So every time somebody in Loud, who's the average rent is at 1400 the average rent in Loud, could possibly get a mortgage of 1000 to 1100 a month. We'll be saving three to €400 Euros a month. And at some point in time, they can buy that equity stake out of it. It's not a second mortgage, as people have said. That equity stake out at any stage over that period that they're living in that house. And I think it is a good product. It is a product that's looked at differently. It is a product that's trying to bridge that affordability gap. And we all must admit there is an affordability gap to home ownership. And that's what this scheme is doing. It is targeted. It is measured. It is capped at 400 million. It is also only less, less than 1% of the total mortgage market. And somebody coming from business, I can understand that something that is less than 1% will not have a significant impact on the mortgage market. Okay, if, so this was a product, if this was a product mm-hmm. that was holding 15 to 20% of the mortgage market, yes, then it would drive it. All right. But I, this I, is less less than 1% of the total mortgage market in Ireland. Okay. It is targeted, it is capped, uh, and it has gone through central banks. I'm sorry to say we're over time. We'll have to let people make up their own minds on it. But thank you indeed thank uh, you, for Michael, joining us. Right for Much time. appreciated. That's uh, Senator Pat Casey. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you're driving uh, this morning, have you checked your phone as you've been driving? If you have, you're not the only one. One in four of us do it regularly, it seems. Let's talk to Brian Farrell, the Communications Manager with uh, the Road Safety Authority. Good morning to you, Brian, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Is this of concern to you? It it is indeed, uh, Michael. Um, We have... Uh, I, I suppose normally when we do this survey, we just ask people, you know, do, do you use your phone or do you text and, and uh, while driving? And uh, we, we've had to do it in, in more detail and ask more probing questions because, you know, mobile phones now, by their nature, you know, perform so many different tasks and, and, and people are using them for so many different reasons from, as I mentioned, um, as you mentioned, sorry, in the intro, you know, checking notifications while driving, you know, 23% of drivers saying they do that. But one in 14 drivers are saying that they actually use their mobile phone um, uh, while, while driving to take photos and videos and to share them on their social media. Um, you know, 19% are saying that they use them to read uh, emails and, and actual text messages. And 12% saying that they, uh, you know, check their social media regularly while they're, while they're driving. So, you know, it, it's becoming a really complex problem out there on the roads. And, and, and we know that driver distraction is a, is, is a big factor in, 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 in death and injuries on our roads. And look, you know, the international research is there. They're saying you're four times more likely to be involved in a crash if you're, uh, if, if you're using your mobile phone while driving. So we're trying to highlight the problem. And, and I think, Michael, people know intuitively that it is dangerous. It is a distraction. Mm. And 
I think it's, and, and you'll see in, in, in our statement that we've put out on this, that mm-hmm. it may be time for us to have a look at the whole penalties around mobile phones and driving. Well, the um, legislation before you get to the penalties, because I, I take it a lot of the time people aren't doing anything wrong and what you're doing is offering advice to them because they're within the limits of the law. Well, if you're using a handheld mobile phone, so that's even, you know, holding it in your hand mm. or having it in the crook of your neck while driving. You know, if you're even just holding the phone full stop. You're breaking the law. You're, you're breaking you're, you're, the yeah, law. Yeah. And at the moment, it's three penalty points and a 60 euro fine. But, but here's the thing, um, Michael. The points were, the, the, the offence was introduced in 2006. Mm. The points were increased from two to three in 2014. The fine hasn't changed. It's been €60 since 2006. So it hasn't changed in 16 years. If you look at other European countries and you look at the fines that they have in place for mobile phones, they're much, much, much more significant than that. And the the new government road safety strategy has identified a need for us to have a look at the Mm. penalties for road traffic offences, including mobile phones, to see are they still fit for purpose? Is it sufficient and enough of a deterrent? Now, interestingly enough, Michael, it would seem that of all the road safety issues out there, the one thing that really just seems to get under everyone's skin is mobile phones. Mm. They absolutely really do not uh, approve of using a mobile phone. That well, you can nearly tell when a car is swaying in front of you that somebody's holding their phone and they're totally distracted uh, trying to open the phone or whatever it is. Uh, but uh, there's no offence for people who have uh, hands-free mobile, uh, who have it up in the cradle or who have a built-in system in the car. Well, here's the thing. If it if it leads to the kind of driving that you were describing there, because don't forget, there's it's a distraction. You know, there's, mm. there's no safety benefit from from those devices. It's a distraction. So if you're not if you're listening to your conversation and you're not listening to what's happening and the and the sounds or the ambulance or the or, or the car, you know, uh, you know the the traffic around yeah. you. If you're not focused on your task because you suffer from a tunnel vision when you're engaged in a conversation on the phone even on a hands-free if you're not observing if it leads to careless driving you can be prosecuted for careless or inconsiderate yeah, but driving it, but, but, or but, driving but, but, but in itself it, it in itself is not an offence no, and no different not. to selecting a CD uh, some of our older listeners might remember what they are uh, or lighting a, a cigarette or uh, un, uh, unwrapping a, a, a breakfast ra- roll or whatever well, I, well, the, the, the scientific evidence is quite clear in there. They're saying that, yes, all those things you describe are distractions, but using a mobile phone while driving uh, causes, you know, physical, visual, auditory and cognitive distractions for a longer Pro, prolonged period of time and, and they are it is a higher form of, of driver distraction it's probably the highest form of driver distraction out there yeah. but to get back to the point on the penalties you know the people that we surveyed are saying that they want to see the penalties increase for, for, for mobile phone use. And, and in fact, 70% of motors that we polled are saying that, yes, it's time to review the penalties. And 57 almost, you know, almost 60% of people, three out of five people out there are saying that they would actually support a doubling in the penalties and the fines, the, mm. the, the current number of penalty points and fines. If you go up to the UK, up, up north, I think it's, it's, it's six penalty points for using a mobile phone uh, there. And uh, of course, here in this country, it's, it's three, three penalty points. And if you get 12 over a three-year period, you're, you're off the road for six months. And I think yeah. it, it really is time for us to, to review the... Because and, and with good reason. Uh, and I, I suppose that's 
why the law is framed in the way that it is. Uh, and I think you'd agree, Brian, there's no doubt it is far more dangerous uh, to be holding a, a phone if you're using it while you're driving uh, than one that is hands-free. Uh, and that's why those penalties are there. But if it's hands-free, uh, you are allowed to, by law, to use your phone. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I, I, I mean, all you can do now uh, is offer advice to people that it's dangerous and they can either decide to take that on board or not. I uh, think that probably a lot of people won't take it on board because they're doing it all the time, they feel safe doing it, rightly or wrongly, uh, and they know that they are within the letter of the law. Oh, no, that, that's absolutely true, Michael. And, and the problem there is that it's... It, 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 and we tried this initially when the law was introduced first and it was unworkable and they had to scrap it and, and come up with a, come up with a, a, a new law to, tack, to tackle the issue. Um, but I think that's where technology has potentially a role to play in terms of solving this particular problem. And I think, you know, new technologies that are coming out that can restrict use, in-car use, I think that's, that's some, some mm. you know, something that's potentially down the road that could, down the road that could help us, uh, you know, solve this, uh, solve this particular problem. And and it, and it is and it is a real it is a real challenge out there for mm. for law enforcement agencies not just in this country and of course they know, can lead they can lead to better and safer driving I, I know you could end up going down the wrong way in a one way street if you're using Google Maps or something but it's ge- like the blind leading the blind sometimes yeah, Michael but, yeah sometimes yeah. but but yeah. Uh, rarely is it like that I mean generally uh, it takes out a lot of the panic and confusion in trying to find a, a place that you're not familiar with and it can be a very valuable tool uh, and I think oh, you'd have to. So, I think, yeah, you, I think yeah. you'd have to forgive people for touching their screen and looking at the map and all of that, that because um, it is that, exactly well, it, that, it, it, it is it, that too. It, it absolutely has a purpose yeah. and it serves a purpose and it's an excellent tool for, you know, you know, um, uh, satellite navigation, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But what we're talking about here is, you know, is when, when people are using it to, to check their messages and their emails and their social media notifications mm-hmm. and, you know, for taking photos and videos and sharing them on social media, like that's just irresponsible you know, if you put your car, if you put your your your, your phone on car mode, uh, you can still use the um, satellite navigation, mm. and it'll. Is it, it that it, much know, more it, of a distraction than using maps? No, I, th- I think if you put the phone on 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 car car mode, you can use these applications, mm. you know, relatively safely. Um, and what I always do when I'm using them myself you know, is, is make sure that I go through my journey before I actually set off. So I look at the journey, I look where mm. Google Maps is going to send me, and I choose my route, um, uh, you know, and I know, you know, I have a good idea where I'm going, and I have familiarised myself with the route. It'll I sometimes ask you, though, it'll sometimes ask you, do you want to, do you want to take a, a quicker, a longer but quicker route uh, because of traffic, things like that, and it'll, yeah, re- yeah. you know. And, and that's, and that's where I mean, it can be a that, help. And that's the, where it can be a help. But if you're driving along at, I don't know, 80 kilometres an hour and you're tapping the phone, uh, telling it what to do, uh, is it more dangerous than opening your, opening your think, camera? And, and I think, you know, it's, 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 it's probably the same as, as switching the channel on your, on, on, on on your the, radio, on the radio yeah. which you shouldn't be doing, of course, Michael. But the thing is, um, <laughs> Never what happens. we're talking about here is, 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 you know, and what we've polled is, is where people are using the phone 
irresponsibly and using it irresponsibly in such a way that it is causing significant distraction. It's causing significant uh, visual, physical distraction. It's stopping you from operating the car. It's stopping Mm. you from concentrating on the task uh, at hand, which is driving the car and reading the road. And it's stopping you from listening out to any dangers uh, that there are out there on roads and and thinking, as I said, about the task at hand. So, you know, what's really important is that we, you know, we try and stamp out that kind of activity on the roads. And the guards are very clear. They're saying that they're out there enforcing this law. I mean, 22,000 penalty points notifications were issued last year for people holding holding a mobile phone when driving. And, you know, that's what we want to we want to tell people. And as I said at the outset, I think people instinctively and intuitively know that this is unsafe practice. And what you don't want to do is is end up getting three points on your license and being a quarter of the way towards losing losing your 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 driving license. Yeah, or to cross the white line and end up being paraplegic if not dead, uh, because that's really what's at the root of everything uh, that you're concerned about. Uh, I think, Brian. Uh, it's we we have eighty six people yeah. killed on our roads to yeah. date this year, yeah. Michael. Yeah. That's up twenty seven yeah. on last year. We are mm. very very concerned about the way the, uh, the you know the, the the casualty figures are going this year on our roads, and we're look we're just trying to appeal to people. Mm. You know, especially at this time of the year when, you know, maybe you have a tendency to relax the guard, the weather is better, there's more hours of daylight, but there are more people out there using the roads, holidaying and, and, and you know, going to festivals, sport events, whatever. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, please, please expect the unexpected on the roads. The farmers are out cutting silage, you know, there's, there's, there's kids on the holidays. So the roads are much busier. Please, please, you know, take care on the roads, mm-hmm. look out for the road users and, and, and look as, and as our message with the mm-hmm. Guardi is, uh, you know, Put the phone away, put it on car mode or airplane mode um, or switch it off. But please don't 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 um, use your phone while driving. Okay. well, you've given us all lots of food for thought this morning. Brian, thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme. Brian Farrell is the communications manager with the RSA, the Road Safety Authority. Michael Michael Reed Reed on LMFM. We'd hoped uh, the Minister for Justice uh, might have had uh, the opportunity to talk to us on uh, the programme uh, today, but uh, there's uh, a graduation in Templemore with Gardaí and the Minister is tied up, uh, unfortunately. We asked, uh, this to talk about the hospital, obviously, uh, we asked uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles uh, if he'd like to talk about it. Uh, The Senator hasn't responded to us, uh, which is a pity, really, um, uh, we, we might have asked him about uh, Senator Erin McGreehan, uh, who is not available to talk uh, to us about all of the F words that she's reported to have said. Maybe uh, the Senator will be available to us on Monday, but we do have Sinn Féin TD for me, the Starin O'Rourke on the line. In fact, we're delighted after it. I didn't, that, that sounded awful as an introduction for you, Darren. I didn't mean it oh, uh, oh that way. Uh, but yeah, you're very welcome to the programme as always and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You're going to talk to us about the hospital and indeed uh, the march tomorrow. It looks uh, as though there's going to be a huge turnout. Uh, there's a, a lot of strong feeling. Why is it, do you think, that people feel so strongly uh, about the emergency department where they're being told that it's in their best interest to close it? Yeah, I think, um, and that is the case, Michael. I, I've been out with, with posters and leaflets and collecting petitions, and we've been out in Kells and on recent Saturdays. And I have to say, um, and I've been out on different campaigns and uh, in different shapes and forms over the years, I have never seen anything like the overwhelming uh, support for Navin Hospital from, from, the, from the people that, that I meet. And we're standing with a, a petition stall, 
literally everybody will sign the petition. They will stand and talk to each other. They will gather in groups and talk about how important the hospital is to the county. Um, They will talk about how far away Drogheda is, how far away Blanchestown is, how far away Mullingar is. They'll talk about the lack of connectivity. They'll talk about uh, the the role the hospital played in their life when they needed the hospital, when it was there. They'll talk about the excellent service. They'll talk about the excellent food in the hospital. Absolutely, people really appreciate and value the the, the hospital. So they're all very well informed um, uh, and they're not buying the line that doctor knows best? Well, well, I, I think what they see, and, and there's a couple of things I would say, Michael. First of all, there isn't a lot of trust or faith in senior management within the HSE. They have seen and they can point towards uh, failures, whether it be in, in Limerick or Roscommon or, or, or other emergency departments. Um, they, you know, so there is a lack of trust with senior management to, to, to deliver on uh, the types of reconfigurations that they have talked about for years and years and years and that's, that they haven't successfully delivered on anywhere. So, so, there's, so, so there is a deep mistrust there. I think they recognise as well that um, the HSE are presenting a solution that will make matters worse. So, so, so they do wonder why, you know, like the HSE initially come out, and, and in fairness to yourself, Michael, um, you know, you, 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 you managed to get to the bottom of it. The HSE come out and said that the, the A&E wasn't closing even though that's exactly what was happening. So people can see through that. I think they understand it. They know that, um, that the A&E in Navan can be anything that the HSE wanted to be. It can be a shining example if the HSE wanted to be, if they invest in it, if they support it. Also, it can be run down and uh, without investment, it can, be, uh, it can be dangerous and there can be risks. And I, for one, am not uh, dismissing what the HSE are saying in terms of the risks that are there. But what I'm saying is that we are hearing very clearly that the HSE solution will make matters worse. So we believe that investment in NAV and A&E is the way mm. forward to protect and enhance services and to invest to make Navin A&E safe. Okay, and uh, I, I was asking Patrick Tobain earlier uh, about that uh, because uh, it is pretty complicated to make that investment work for you and it may not turn out that way uh, because you'd be talking about recruiting consultants and so on. Uh, they may not be available. They may not uh, apply to work in Navin and even if they did, you'd be talking about a, a long time. So what about what happens in the interim? Well, I would, I would make the point, uh, Michael, in the first instance, that, that the HSE clinical leadership who are coming now, who are saying that Navin isn't safe, I would ask them how, how and why they let that situation arise. They're supposed to have clinical responsibility, so it's a, it's a bit rich. Um, and I think do you think so? I'm not sure that's fair because I think these are concerns that have been raised time and again by the management, have they not? Uh, I think that there is a question for successive governments why they've stood back and allowed this situation to continue uh, because it's been well known uh, since 2013 uh, without a, a doubt but long before that for that matter. Uh, that's, a, that's a fair point. That's a fair point, Michael. Um, uh, uh, but 
um, I think uh, when, when, when it becomes apparent that we have this type of policy drift, uh, I suppose the, the difficulty with the HSE, if, if I want to, to give my perspective on, on some of their perspective, is that they have a, a written black and white policy that the A&E and Navin is to close. It's in the small hospitals framework. But we have political drift that you know, doesn't allow that to happen. And I think in fairness to the people of Mead, they have stood uh, in support of their hospital and that has contributed to it and, and the Navin Hospital campaign and, the, you know, the various uh, political groups that, that have, have mobilised in relation to it. But at the same time, they have to live with those risks and if they see those risks arising mm. and a government refusing to, to close NAV and A&E, well then they need to put a plan in place to, su- to support yeah. them and to reduce those risks. And well, it got to breaking point now and that's why you're seeing Paul Reid resign. Uh, I mean, there's, I could be wrong, but there's no doubt in my mind that that's why Paul Reid is resigning. He's saying he can't stand over this. Uh, and the minister uh, is embarrassing him. He's undermining him. He's ridiculing him. Uh, and he is ridiculing him, talking about the HSE not doing this, that and the other and making these plans uh, when they haven't made provision for safe, safe alternatives uh, and so on. Uh, and he is most certainly usurping his authority. Yeah, and and I, I think um, I think that yeah, I can speculate. I, I, it's certainly a, a real coincidence, and I'm obviously we're all following the the Navin Hospital story very closely. And you know, it was it seemed a real bolt out of the blue that notice on the the Monday morning following um, uh, Paul Reed's uh, statements on, on on radio on the Sunday, and um, uh, the, the 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 minister's response after that. It certainly did seem like a a, a, a real coincidence. So so mm. I, I don't know if if it is the case but um, that, that those two issues are, are related but I would say... And there's say political hands all over this. Uh, I, I mean um, this gagging order on the hospital staff, on Jerry McEntee and the other staff in Navin, is outrageous is it not? Uh, telling uh, doctors not to speak to the community which means the local politicians and the media, the Mead Chronicle and LMFM. Uh, and undoubtedly, it's the case now with the doctors in Drogheda. Yeah. So, 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 um, a couple of things in relation to that. For, first of all, it is com- it is completely outrageous, and the minister has been absolutely all over the place. And the government need to, uh, in my firm opinion, what needs to happen here is the government need to adopt a clear position in relation to the future of Navin Hospital, investment, uh, recruitment into it, and make it safe. Do those things and instruct the HSE and resource the HSE to do that. That's what needs to happen here. And if they did that we would have success in Navin. The issue in relation to, you know, the management of it, uh, a complete debacle uh, from Stephen Donnelly, um, it, it, unsurprising there given his, his his track record. I would say this, Michael, as well, though. Um, uh, the HSE themselves are well used to gagging people. You know, I, I, I know mm-hmm. during the, 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 the pandemic and nurses were on social media talking about the lack of, of PPE and this and that. I know specifically from talking to nurses that they were told, you need not to be publicising that. We know that the HSE dragged people through the courts time and time again in a you know a, a, a really difficult way. And Michael, how many how many of the twenty three consultants who wrote a letter to to to, to Minister Donnelly? Have you spoken to? How many of them have spoken publicly in relation to it? But the last time I was on your show, Michael, they hadn't stated, they hadn't, they hadn't been on, on, on record in relation to it. The only reason they went on record, as I understand it, is that the minister specifically requested it. 
they, they, I, I can say, Michael, that I have been engaging with, with consultants uh, in, in, in the HCNR region who are expressing deep concerns in relation to the HSE's proposals, and they are afraid for their own careers, for their own jobs, for their own uh, um, uh, career progression, yeah. to, to speak out against Sorry, the HSE. I'm going to have to ask you a little bit more about that. Are you saying Stephen Donnelly told the consultants in Drogheda to write to him? It's my understanding that he sought, and, and in fairness, when we when we met with the HSE on the uh, on the 13th of, of June, we made the case that we are hearing from consultants uh, in uh, Drogheda and in Navan yeah. that they are not happy with these proposals. Okay. And I no, 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 you said the only reason they went on the record was because the minister told them to. Did, did he tell them to write a letter to himself as the minister and was that letter leaked to the media by the minister's uh, people? Oh, I, I don't know if, if that's the case. But what I want to say, Michael, is for a long time, privately, and I can speak for myself, I know I can speak for, 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 for Johnny Gork, I am sure I can speak for, for Pat O'Tobin and probably for, for some of the, the, the government TDs in the constituency, I certainly heard from clinicians on the front line who are saying to me, this move is not safe but I cannot go on the public record because I fear for the implications for my career progression. And okay. that's, that's a statement of, of, of fact, and I'm, being, I, I'm being, being true in relation to that, Michael. Now we have a letter... But you also from, said, you, you say that letter uh, came about because of an instruction from the minister. Well, I think on the back of our meeting on the 13th of, of June... And, and I'm open to clarification in relation to this, but, but uh, uh, my understanding is that the minister specifically sought, and, and in his statement of the 13th of June, the minister said, I am hearing that there are concerns in Drogheda and Navan from clinicians, and I want to hear from them. So my understanding is that he went and sought the information, sought those, sought those concerns out, and they are now documented. Mm. They certainly are. Uh, yeah, and, but, 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 you know, Michael, it's a reasonable question to ask. We, we haven't heard those consultants articulating their perspective on the public airwaves. Um, we, we have heard from the HSE yeah. who, are, who are trying to, in my opinion, ram through a yeah. proposal that is poorly thought out and will make matters worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a reasonable question when we're talking about, you know, gagging and silencing sure. or, 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 you know, and, and, and even it might not be that, Michael, but what, certainly what it is, it's not, you're not getting the full picture. Okay, I would have to say we're guilty of uh, making an assumption that the HSE wouldn't be too... Uh, keen, let's say, to make those consultants available to us, given that they've uh, a very different opinion to that of uh, the board of the HSE, which is why we didn't ask the HSE to make them available to us. We did name the 17 doctors who put their name to that letter, uh, and uh, we read out huge portions of that letter. Indeed, we read out many of uh, the extracts uh, to Jerry McEntee, uh, who faced them down, it has to be said, on the programme this week. Uh, but 
tomorrow is going to be a, a big day uh, and uh, just to reiterate for people uh, it's one o'clock uh, that you're asking people to meet uh, tomorrow to make their views known absolutely and we want as many people on the streets as, as, as possible uh, and to send the clearest message to government and you're right Michael it's government that, that are the key in relation to all this they can make it all happen if they clearly instruct the HSE they resource the HSE and instruct them to invest and make Navinay and E safe uh, to deliver an excellent service, to continue delivering an excellent yeah. and increasingly safe service for the people of County Mead. Okay, uh, as I said at the outset, uh uh, kind of awkwardly uh, because it didn't mean to me <laughs> that you were second best we wanted to speak to all Oroctus, uh members uh, this week on the programme we spoke to Thomas Byrne and Johnny Gurk yesterday uh, we had hoped to speak uh, to Helen McEntee and Shane Castles uh, today uh, but they weren't available the Minister isn't available uh, Senator Castles didn't get back to us uh, and there are three other Oroctus members uh, who um, wouldn't uh, be speaking on this programme for a variety of reasons that we won't go into right now uh, but thanks uh, for talking to us about that today. Uh, before you leave us though Darren O'Rourke, um, I want to talk to you uh, about uh, another issue, uh, a very important issue that you raised in the Dáil last night and uh, homeless Stamullen FC, tell us more if you would please Yeah, the, the club Stamullen uh, football club um, uh, uh, the soccer club in Stamullen, they have 20 teams, they have 320 players, like many clubs uh, around the, the, the county, you know, dedicated volunteers, um, a, a real community and sporting outlet in a, in a growing community in Stamullen. But they find themselves homeless because they they had a, um, a, a rental agreement with Gormanston Park, um, who managed the facility there on the former site of, of Gormanston College. Um, that agreement, uh, because Gormanston Park are a commercial outfit. They made a commercial decision um, to terminate the contract and um, uh, Stimulin FC find themselves homeless. Now, they have been everywhere. They've been to neighbouring clubs. They've been to landowners. They've been to developers. They've been to elected representatives. They've been to the, you know, the defence forces at, at, at Gormanston Camp. And they haven't been able to find accommodation for themselves. They are, uh, uh, in fairness to St. Pat's GA and Clarktown United, there, there is an arrangement there where they're, they're, they're leaning on them. Um, but they have no space of, of their own. And I raised it last, last evening in the Dáil uh, with the Minister. And, and in the context of Stamullen being a community that mm. is completely uh, de- uh, has an infrastructure deficit we have a campaign for you know a playground campa- campaign yeah. for a municipal park and, and mm. the, the, the the answer Michael is the and skate park I heard, I, heard, I heard you make all those points in the dollars it, it was a very uh, long debate uh, relative uh, to the subject of getting a grounds for a, a, a sports club like that I think it went on for about uh, 10 minutes as you say you took it to the floor of uh, the doll and brought this issue to the Minister for Sport Jack Chambers. Uh, maybe we can just take a, a quick listen to what he had to say to you in response. Obviously we're, we're open to uh, in, through the funding structures that we have and I accept that there's a lacuna and a vacuum in Stamullen which you've referenced and it's a very fair point participation can't happen without land what I would say is that there is I know from um, from recent uh, press releases around uh, around the issue in, in, and um, and articles in the Mead Chronicle, the issue has been outlined around appealing to the local authority. And obviously Mead, very proud sporting county, um, does invest in its facilities and the local authority does. Um, and I think 
there's an obligation from a local authority at least to work with the club and the local community to identify what land could be available uh, with the view then to availing of the significant funding opportunities that will be there um, as a reference in my remarks. Um, so th that, that is the, the direct means to, in terms of land acquisition, which obviously we, we try and fund the capital infrastructure. We haven't, there is no precedent oh, for, for us uh, purchasing land itself. Darren O'Rourke, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but it sounds to me like the Minister is putting it up to the Council to find a, a solution to this problem that the Mullen FC have. Well, I think in fairness to the Minister, he engaged, as you said, quite extensively. Yes, he is, um, because that's the, you know, the, uh, the, the unfortunate lacuna you have, um, that there isn't a department that you can go to to secure lands for, for playgrounds, or, or it, it's up to the local authority. Um, but what the Minister was saying there is that his department has grants, has supports, has funding that could be tapped into. But Mead County Council, the clear thing for me, and I spoke to the Minister after our dull debate as well, the clear thing for me, and I think the community understand this as well, whether it's Stamullen FC or the the playground group or the the the, uh, um, the 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 scouts group, Mead County Council are responsible for for proper planning and sustainable development. There is a, a huge community infrastructure deficit in, in Stamullen, and Mead County Council need to come to the table with uh, uh, their solution hat on. Well. We'll ask them uh, if they have a solution uh, that uh, they'd like to share with us. Uh, the Minister has made it clear uh, they should be looking at, at one. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for me, the star in O'Rourke. Michael Reed on LMFM. I, I think whenever we talk uh, about housing, it's true to say uh, that there are some of you who are blue in the face making contact with us, talking about all of uh, the empty properties here and there, vacant houses uh, across every town and village, it seems, in the country. But how many of them are habitable? And if they are habitable, uh, are they available for housing or are they lying idle? Uh, it's very hard to say. I, I think I'm not sure if anybody can tell us at, at this stage, uh, but the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, has said that he is going to introduce a vacant habitable property tax as part of Budget 23, and that will apply to houses that are suitable for housing now but are lying idle from the early part of next year. Let's speak to Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who works with the homeless. A very good morning to you, Peter, and thanks, as always, for joining us on the programme. I'm sure uh, that, in principle, this is something that you would welcome. Yeah, I'd welcome it. But there is a precondition to this, and that is that we have a database of empty properties and why they're empty. Uh, there is no database. And the local authorities don't have the resources or the manpower to, uh, to go around and collect a database, generally speaking. So I think we need a national uh, database of empty properties with the owner's names. I think that should be available. Uh, and the reasons why they're empty. Some of those properties are empty for very valid reasons. Mm. Uh, 
people could be in a fair home, uh, it could be part of the fair deal scheme. They're in a nursing home, though the government is, is attempting to, uh, to remedy that as well. But it could be that a person has died and the property is, uh, is going to be sold, but it takes time. Mm. Could be legal problems uh, with, with some properties as to uh, who exactly is the ownership or the, the land uh, boundaries, perhaps, with the properties. So it's it's quite mm. complicated. Or, or, or the property but could be derelict. That Without that database, we yeah. can't do anything. The government did have a couple of schemes whereby they would give a grant to the owners of empty properties to bring them back into use. Mm. Uh, that was very poorly taken up uh, by the owner. So I think we need yes, this is a this is a this is part of the stick. Uh, we need the carrot and stick approach. Yeah, well, the properties could be derelict and not suitable for housing. Uh, there's 166,000 vacant properties in the country apparently. Uh, 52,206 of them are habitable. Uh, and the minister was asked, does that mean 110,000 of them are derelict? He said, well, the figure could actually be higher than that. Uh, but of the 52,206 that are habitable, uh, it's, it's impossible to know how many of them are available for all of the reasons that you've just gone through. Yeah, no, th- th- those figures are very dubious, actually. They come from the census. But the census takes a snapshot on one particular night, and if the house is empty on that particular night, then it goes down as an empty house. But it could be that the people are away on holidays, or it could be for other reasons that the house is empty. Mm. So we need the database. That's it my. Could be, a, uh, could be a holiday. I really, what I really want to see is a national database, empty buildings who owns them, why they're empty, and what can be done to, to restore them. Some of them are un, uninhabitable, of course, yes. Some mm. of them may be in areas where there isn't a great housing need, uh, so they wouldn't be suitable anyway. So it's quite a complex issue, uh, And uh, but I welcome anything that will bring empty properties back into use. I think there are a lot of empty properties that are that are crying out to be used. Mm. You know, properties over shops that that were uh, were originally maybe uh, lived in, properties on the main streets uh, mm-hmm. of, of towns, there, there wouldn't, there's no question about them. They are, should be brought back into use and should be brought back into use as quickly as possible. Okay. And if the owners won't agree to, uh, to bring them back into use with the government uh, subsidy, then uh, the carrots, the, the stick should be brought out. Okay, again. as I understand it, uh, and uh, as I'm corrected, uh, I, I think the government probably has got a, a little bit closer to that database that you're looking for, that you've been talking about, uh, that instead of going off for the census figures, they're looking at figures from revenue, which were measured over a 12-month period. And I think that's where that figure of over 57,000 vacant habitable properties comes from. Uh, But uh, this includes, let's say, the likes of uh, holiday homes. Uh, And I take it you're entitled to have a holiday home and have it vacant for 11 months of the year if that's what you want to do with it. Oh, absolutely. The census actually does distinguish, I I understand it, Mm. between holiday homes and empty uh, homes. Uh, I don't think holiday homes are included in that figure of of empty homes. Obviously, they they can't be included, shouldn't be included. Uh, But uh, as far as Mm. I know, uh, they're not included in the census. Uh, 
Mm. Well. You, you, you may live six months of the year or ten months of the year in London uh, and come home every now and then uh, to a house that could be looked on as being vacant uh, as well. It's very complicated uh, in terms of, of deciding that it is vacant, lying idle uh, is probably a way of putting it, uh, a better way of putting it, of understanding it, uh, so yeah, that it's su- like subject to tax. Every local authority to be given the resources to employ one person full time. Yeah. <laughs> go around identify empty sites, go on to the land registry or whatever and identify who the owners are, contact the owners and uh, then decide what uh, what needs to be done. Mm, yeah. Uh, if they are to be taxed, um, would the tax uh, have an impact? Uh, which, well, it would again, depend on the level of the tax, what wouldn't the tax rate would be. Yeah. They haven't disclosed mm. that yet, but it has to be punitive. Mm. I mean, we had a, a, a vacant sites levy, which was absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> I think it was 3% rising to 7% at a time when land prices were, uh, were, were, were rising by about 14% per annum. Mm. So it has to be, it has to be a realistic uh, uh, tax that will penalise people who deliberately and for no good reason leave their property uh, idle. And, but what would you be talking about, hundreds or thousands? Uh, you're talking about a percentage of the value of the property. Mm. Okay. So maybe something in the region of 10% maybe of the value of the property. Uh, on an be, an, uh, off the top of my head. On, on an annual basis? On an annual basis? Yeah. My God, so you'd pay 50000 on a 500,000 euro house? Yep. Right. That'll, that'll force people to bring it back into use. As I say, it has to be punitive. Yeah. If it, uh, but it's for it's only for a person who has a home and deliberately does not want uh, to bring it back into use, does not want to avail of the government uh, mm. government uh, grants, uh, and uh, just simply wants it to lie idle. It's mm. not for somebody who's in the process of doing something about yeah. it, maybe selling it or maybe... Well, that's it. No, I think the minister said there'd be exemptions for those things. Uh, and a lot of uh, the 50,000 houses would be exempt from the tax because the reason they're idle or uh, empty, vacant or whatever uh, is because they're up for sale or they're being leased or they're undergoing renovations or whatever the case may be. Well, in some but, cases, it's just yeah. too damaged. <laughs> yeah. the, the renovation would cost so much that uh, it'd be cheaper to do demolish and rebuild. But uh, of the 52,000 that are habitable, uh, if, I don't know, 10%, 5% uh, would do a lot to um, help with the housing crisis, wouldn't it? Uh, I mean, you've got 10,000 people or, uh, uh, yeah, 10,000 people actually are on uh, the housing waiting list, isn't it? Or on the, um, uh, in emergency accommodation. Oh, 10,000 yeah. in emergency accommodation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah there's so, about 60,000, 70,000 yeah. on the housing waiting list. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but when you, when you talk about the homeless situation with emergency accommodation, uh, I mean, if you're looking at 10,000 houses available uh, that are lying idle at the moment, uh, suddenly you've got a, a solution overnight. Well, partly, partly, yes. I mm. mean, there's far more than 10,000 homeless. They're mm. only the people who are counted, who are living in government-funded emergency accommodation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm. include people who are sofa surfing. It doesn't include people who are sleeping on the street or mm. sleeping mm. in tents. 
doesn't include people who are living with their parents because they can't afford to move out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right there's up. a lot of people mm-hmm. not included in that 10,000, but certainly 50,000 would go a long way. There's no single solution to this housing crisis. We, it's, it's, it's a multi-pronged approach, and we have to use every possible avenue to increase the housing stock. Modular housing is something I'm very keen on. We should be buying thousands of modular units mm, yes. <laughs> at this stage and putting them onto sites that are already mm. uh, ready uh, have planning permission for residential. Yeah, where they where they arrive more or less built, and you put them together like Lego. You, 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 they arrive totally built. Yeah, totally built. Mm-hmm. And you can buy them. You can buy very good quality uh, modular units for fifty thousand, sixty thousand. Uh, and they can be built in twelve in twelve weeks, mm. okay. <laughs> and they can be delivered in another couple of weeks. All right. Uh, maybe there's uh, some food for thought uh, in that uh, for those uh, who are going to look for one hundred and fifty thousand off the government to buy a house worth four hundred and fifty thousand. What do you think of the latest scheme? I'm, uh, I think anything that increases demand without increasing supply simply uh, pushes up the price of houses. I think it's a negative uh, proposal. I can understand the government, they, people who are going to avail of this grant are voters. <laughs> and I suspect very much that this is a scheme aimed at, uh, at, at gaining votes, but I'm not in favour of it, no. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. Sure. Thank you. That's uh, Father Peter McVerry. Michael Reed on LMFM. So just a a few comments uh, left in uh, the short time that we have before we head off uh, to have Sheila throw a few shrimps on uh, the barbie. Uh, Sheila in touch with us actually is uh, wishing uh, people well if they're taking... uh, part in the rally in Navin tomorrow. She says she really hopes it, it goes well and that it makes a difference for the campaign's sake. Similar protests were held in Dundalk in a bid to save the Louth County Hospital and people marched until their feet were sore but all to no avail. Certainly did. I remember 10,000 people out uh, marching uh, to save uh, the emergency department and ICU beds and uh, the services in the Louth County uh, to no avail as Sheila says Uh, she goes on to say she believes it all depends on the political will of the public reps if uh, they get behind the cause maybe the campaign will have a a better chance of achieving its mission unfortunately that wasn't the case in Dundalk Angela says fair play to Padertoe Bean for continuing the fight to retain services in Navan there's nothing wrong with the hospital countless lives have been saved there over the years and management need to to keep services. They need to fight to keep those services, she says. Uh, Text WhatsApp, actually, from somebody who says, what planet are the government and the HSE on? It's obvious that the HSE is running down the hospital and not putting in uh, the medical teams to run it properly. Navin is bigger than ever, and it's still growing with uh, another thousand being built I take it that's houses you're putting more pressure on the medical staff in Navin and Drogheda and Dublin haven't the doctors and nurses and to the staff on the floor been under enough pressure from Covid without this it's time to think about the safety of people and put people first says our caller thank you indeed uh, for that the doctors are very worried about patient safety and they say that's uh, the only interest that they have in this uh, that's improving patient safety and the outcomes for patients. Uh, somebody else says, Michael, just because a consultant is a qualified medic, does that mean that he's right? Uh, should they not be questioned? Uh, he or none of the other managers I- involved in downgrading Navin live in the locality or will ever have to queue in emergency department staff are indirectly gagged 
as it would be frowned upon if you openly gave your views. Uh, there's a, a culture uh, that uh, really needs to be questioned within the health service, as our caller. Tony is in County Louth, and he's also contacting us about the situation in Navan. And he says, uh, firstly, it's quite obvious that this is almost the only policy item for Padder Tobin, which, if unsuccessful, may well put his re-election in doubt. I think that could be argued, Tony, <laughs> or else you're trying to get me into trouble. Uh, he says, with regard to the other TDs, uh, they've successfully turned this into a disagreement with uh, the HSE and Jerry McEntee and not the government that they're part of, which would be embarrassing. And the Minister for Health is helping them out by claiming that the other hospitals are not ready to pick up the extra patients. But it has to be said that at the end of the day, if this is successfully resisted, I'm sure that those are waiting in the wings in other towns and uh, they'll be looking for the services to be restored in the Louth and elsewhere. Thank you, Tony. That's our programme for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.